one time I got asked, what price tags do you attach to like your knowledge or your culture or your story? And I replied, I don't know, how much is the Alisa worth? To me, it's worth everything. And, you know, this person that complained to me about how the menu was just like corn and beans, that's two of three sisters. That is literally the foundation of nutrition in an entire continent. For me, it's sacred. Welcome to the Stephen Satterfield Show, part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Welcome back to my eponymous show. It's Stephen Satterfield. Today we have a special guest, Ana Castro. And if this is y'all's first time hearing about Ana Castro, I promise it will not be your last, certainly not from my lips. I am a huge, huge fan of Ana's. The first time I heard about her was about two years ago. Chef Marisela Vega in Atlanta, Georgia, was raving about a Chicana chef in New Orleans whose food I had to taste. And then a few months after that, I get a call from the homies Norma and Sakib from Masala y Maiz and Marigold in Mexico City that they're pulling up to New Orleans to do a pop-up and it's going to be hosted by Anna and we make it happen. It was one of the best meals I had all year and for me created an awareness around Anna as a tremendous talent an emerging star in our industry. And I'm so excited to watch her rise. And when I spoke to her for this podcast, I don't believe it had yet been announced that she would be branching out on her own, along with her very laser sharp sister, Lydia, to develop their own restaurant, a Mexican mariscos concept called Acamaya, which is Spanish for crawfish. Anna has impeccable taste, so I know Akamaya will also be impeccable. It is slated to open in the spring of 2024. Relatedly, I'm very pleased to say that we are working with Anna at home, so stay tuned on all the ways you will see and hear her name pop up in our universe at Whetstone, Home, and Beyond. Okay, next up, Chef Anna Castro. Anna Castro, thanks again for making time. This is an exciting moment because Anna is one of the most talented and promising young chefs that I've had the pleasure of not only meeting, but obviously getting to taste your food and is one of the most hilarious and charismatic human beings I've ever met in my life too. Thank you for having me. So your grandma, I'm assuming, is who we have to thank for giving you the game in the kitchen. My grandmother is the best. She's wonderful. And I always say me and my sister Lydia are a sum of all her sacrifices. That's beautiful. I want to talk about some of your sacrifices because Mm. your journey in food, I know, included a formal stop, in quotations formal, at the Le Cordon Bleu. And also growing up at a time in the industry where abuse, especially for people in the kitchen of all Mm -hmm. kinds, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse even, still was rampant in the industry. I'm curious about how you grew up in the food and wine world or in the restaurant world and how specifically you felt challenged. Uh, Well, I, when I was a 
kid, I think after high school, I pretty much knew I wanted to be like a chef or be in food, you know? So I wanted to go to the Culinary Institute of America because like that was all the talk, you know? My dad also was like insistent that I needed to have a bachelor's degree. Why? I don't know why, honestly. I think it's because my family is one generation away from extreme poverty. My grandpa was the only one of all his brothers and sisters to go to college. So my dad really was insistent on me on going to college. So he enrolled me in a very fancy college in Mexico City. I don't want to sound like an ungrateful brat. And it was their pilot program for pretty much a culinary arts bachelor's degree. And the technical aspect of this program was being taught in partnership with Le Cordon Bleu. And that's kind of how I attended Le Cordon Bleu. I did some of uh, their Le Grand Diplôme. I never finished it. Thankfully, I'm at the point in my career that I don't have to lie about it on my resume anymore. <laughs> I used to lie about it all the time. I'm like, yeah, 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 I finished it. I finished it. Uh, I didn't. But <laughs> my, um, you know, my experience wasn't great with culinary school. I really think it's like a pyramid scheme. Like, It's horrible. Yeah. Think about how people used to like learn how to professionally cook before, right? It should come from a deep place of passion for service, right? And like for feeding others and for nourishing others. But it's also because the system of mentorship is completely broken. Mm -hmm. It is very broken before people used to take apprentices, you know, like think about like, uh, let's talk about the annoying French for a second, bread baking, right? It's It was an apprentice. But now that system is broken, so... It also falls into the fact that now being a chef is like equated with this like celebrity aspect that started what somewhere in the 90s with like Emeril and such and such. So now it's a aspirational career, you know, it's like, but that's kind of like how I went to culinary school. I have no love for my alma mater. They asked me to go do a commencement speech because I guess I am one of the few ones that it still cooks and like those kind of like well for themselves. And my career director is the one that asked me to go back to Mexico. And I was just like, yeah, you know what? Get it. <laughs> I'm not going to go. Because this guy called me an agitator because I was complaining because the quality of the classes is, was garbage. It was garbage. Like, it was you know, sub-teacher quality. And I was like, this is not a cheap college. This guy is just coming and playing a video. So I complained about the quality of, uh, of, of, of professors that they had. And I was like, mm, you know, like, this ain't really doing it for me. Yeah. I'm not taking this as a free pass. I'm here to like learn something because that's what my dad told me. So where's the learning yeah. part going to begin? And yeah. he was so upset with me. So when he called me to ask me to go do a commencement speech, I told him that I would go for $10,000. And then I never heard back. <laughs> There you go. First of all, you're hilarious. <laughs> But I actually had a similar experience with, with my Le Cordon Bleu school. I did the hospitality program in Portland. No way. I didn't know that. Yeah. Like way back in the day, I think we might've even been the first class where they had offered hospitality. And I started a student board and obviously made myself president. <laughs> and we started holding meetings where we were like complaining about how there was no education happening. And it was a while later, maybe like 10 years later or something like that, 12 years later, I remember getting hit up for a class action lawsuit from Le Cordon Bleu 
where basically a bunch of former students had sued the company that owns Le Cordon Bleu, which is called, I don't even know if they're around, but it's called the Career Education Corporation. Hell of corporate, publicly traded company. It's the same company that owns like the Art Institute. And so basically they had to pay back. I don't remember what the number was. It was like a couple thousand dollars to students who had graduated from like 06 to whatever, 15 as part of this class action suit because the, the education was so shoddy. And I was pissed because I had started this board and then the, the suit actually did the payout like the year after I graduated. But yeah, the education has been off for a long time. But like, I think now a lot of chefs feel like they would really not make that same choice around culinary school. And I'm curious, because, you know, obviously the French model of apprenticeship ended up getting exploited through like free labor model, which we love in this country. What do you think the, the place of culinary education or mentorship ought to be today? And like, do you see a role for uh, sort of corporate culinary education going forward? I honestly don't see a role of, because what, what does corporate America know about anything? I didn't learn a single thing in school that I had found useful in my everyday like duties as the executive chef of Lengua Madre. Nothing. Zero. Like, I guess I can say like, oh yeah, I can blanch the living shit out of a tomato, you know? But I could learn that on YouTube nowadays. Also, I think the access to the internet has switched uh, tremendously, like changed the playing field. I always say, like, my favorite kitchen tool is my laptop, because if I don't know how to do something, I'll Google it. And that's it. And you'll find within, like, points, less, less than one second, 100,000 results on how to do something. And I think that's really democratized knowledge and for my part, I don't really know what the macro solution is, but in an effort to preserve my own sanity and uh, control my anxiety levels, I try to have a like micro impact instead of thinking about the macro, right? I'm only one chefy in this little 36 restaurant mm -hmm. with, like have, in my kitchen, it's me, my sous chef, and two line cooks, and I try to have the impact yeah. in my own kitchen and with my own community circle of friends and like peers not only a support, but being like an open book when it comes to knowledge, right? And when it comes to be a resource for not only like day-to-day -day problems, but actually being able to bounce off ideas of each other and like rely on each other for knowledge that one has and the other one doesn't. Instead of thinking about the big picture solution, I'm just going to impact my kitchen and my community of friends and peers as much as I can. Yeah. That makes sense because people like you who are reshaping our industry aren't really playing by the same rules as the folks who were hiring us on the come up, you know? So like in the same way that college degrees don't carry the same weight in the marketplace, like it's not like you're out here hiring based on people who have gone to culinary school. Absolutely not. And yeah, the value proposition for folks, I think, much lower, mm -hmm. lower than ever, especially if you have to take out debt. One of the things I love about you, you have a very real 
respect for knowledge. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Knowledge is, it's a real currency. A famous saying in my household and in the community is like, if you knew better, you do better. And so like the pursuit of knowledge for you, if I may, seems to me not to be a thing to hoard and hold and just advance in your own interest, but you really have a reverence for it, like a community resource and you treat it like that. And I am curious if it is a theme around the sharing of knowledge that feels like more urgent and explicit in the work that you do. And, you know, it's very interesting that you said about hoarding knowledge because I actually have done that. Not before, but now actively. Like a year ago or something, a friend of a friend of a friend was like, can I set you up with this guy? And it was a close friend, right? And he really just wants to come and stash and like learn about what y'all do. And when he came in through the doors, he was the corporate chef of a fried chicken chain restaurant in Alabama and Florida. And he was very, very white. And he was just kind of like, oh, I love Mexican food, you know? I was like, okay. At first, I was like, I want to know what you expect out of the experience, right? Let's set some like expectations on both sides. I mean, kudos to him. He was really honest. If I was in his shoes, I would have probably tried to trick me. <laughs> Because then he said like, oh, you know, like my expectation is that I want to learn how to nixtamalize and I want to learn how to make all these things so I can go open a Mexican restaurant. And I was like, oh, cool. I gave him nothing. He was here for four days. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, ah, uh, yeah, I'll see you from uh, 4.30 to like 8 p.m. And he was like, oh, can I come and work prep tomorrow? I was like, no, tomorrow's not a good day. We have a health inspection. And like that, like pack, pack, pack. I was like, I ain't giving you shit. But I think that that is actually, though, this is actually what I mean. That is not really hoarding knowledge. That is actually also a reverence for knowledge. That is a reverence for, I, I really believe that, you know, because whether or not people agree with your tactics within that, that's like not that interesting of a conversation or a debate. <laughs> I feel what's way more interesting is like, Because you talk about knowledge like as a thing where it's like building community, modeling your your ways of being after that exchange of information, openness. And then you're like, and also I would have protected this is sacred. This is in community to be treated, you know, for purely like commercial gain and, and benefit. And I think that for Even those folks who are in our communities, we don't always care for knowledge in the same way. And I think part of the caring for the knowledge is knowing when, you know, it's in community and in the name of building and when it should be protected as to not be extracted and exploited because other people, especially white people, know that this knowledge is really valuable because they could put a new mm -hmm. package on it and exploited for a huge commercial gain. I actually, to a degree, I feel bad about it myself because I'm also exploiting it for commercial. I, I know I am not the monolith of Mexican culture, but I am Mexican. I am from that per culture. Uh, it is my home. And as much as I 
let's use the word share that I want to share it with people. I'm also financially benefiting from it, right? But what what am I to do? You know, like we live under a capitalism, you know, like until a new like system it's created or even imagined, kind of play the game with like as much ethic as you can or I don't know what you're going to do because it's like it's so insidious that it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I actually find it to be a principled stand to say, I'm not turning over these recipes like that. If it really matters that much to you, go be, go turn yourself into Rick Bayless, you know, mm. knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. You know, the capitalism, it's like it touches all of us. It's oxygen, you know, like we can't literally breathe. So escape it. Yeah. I really have a hard time broadly passing judgment around how people get their bread. But if you are going to value the knowledge that you've gained, not only in community, but we were talking about ancestrally, familially, mm-hmm. it is totally valid to say, like, I'm not turning that it over willy nilly for stodge is going to be here for four days take back home and like probably make more money than i am to me that's principled and i have a very easy time separating that from we've all got to make a living again under capitalism everything has to have a price right one time i got asked what price tags do you attach to like your knowledge or your culture or your story and i replied i don't know how much is the alisa worth to me it's worth everything And, you know, this person that complained to me about how the menu was just like corn and beans, that's two of three sisters. That is literally the foundation of nutrition in an entire continent. For me, it's sacred. Yeah. Because Americans don't hold anything sacred. No, I think that's really profound. And I think that this is the beauty of talking to folks who have multiple sets of, of eyes on the U.S. from multiple identities coming from, you know, multiple cultural backgrounds, helping us look at ourselves. One of the things that's really true is the only thing that we really collectively feel monolithically loyal and attached to is money. Mm. We don't hold anything sacred. I'm like, man, the reason that that is hard to hear because it's it's true. You know, the truth is also difficult to hear. My grandma Lydia says, la verdad no peca, pero incomoda, which means the truth, to tell the truth is not not a sin, but wow, is it uncomfortable. Mm, Exactly. Wow. Yeah, no question. So I hear you on that. I want to talk about you right now your career is starting to take off. Mm -hmm. You are on all the lists that every chef wants to be on when they start chef. I want to ask you, how does it feel? Mm. You know, it's a mixture of feelings. It's both really humbling and great, and I'm really grateful for it. But on the other hand, uh, you know, like flirting with being a little cocky, it was always going to happen to me. It was just a matter of when. I love it. Like, I was always going to get there. But it was just a matter of when. So I'm really happy that it's now because I have a lot of energy because I'm still young. And I'm really happy that it is now with my food, like with my food as in like my culture food, like my, my Mexican food. I'm really happy that the moment 
that got me here is when I decided to have a coming back home moment with my cooking. I'm also grateful for the journey and like the fact that I tried to learn other things and I was like, oh, well, Mexican food is not really gonna take me there, right? Or like that in, that's Enrique Olvera's thing and like only he can do it. And like, you know, that market has been filled. And it's not true at all because I've also done something very clever, I think, which is that through like my view of how I think of Mexican food, my upbringing and everything, is that tradition is not static. Mm-hmm. It gives me the freedom of doing kind of like whatever I want with things. One of my great gifts, I think, is that I'm a great storyteller. Nowadays, after coming out of the pandy and everything, people want to hear stories and people want more than just food. People want connection. I thrive on connection. So basically, I'm hearing you say that your rise was always inevitable, but your arrival, mm-hmm. you're grateful for it. You're happy to be here now. Yeah, I'm happy to be here now with this. I love that. I wonder why you felt the inevitability of your place, your station in life. What, where do you think that came from? My parents, of course, like my upbringing. I, I got brought up with the uh, idea. My grandpa told me once, your only job is to be happy. When as I, car- as I grow up, I'm like, damn, that's a tall order. Like that is a hard job. If my one job is to be happy, that is really complicated. Yeah, right. As an adult. And, you know, we have days. We have days that are better than others. But I almost owe it to my grandmother. I owe it to my family to be great because they raised me for nothing less. Like, I want my grandmother to read it and see it and be flooded by it and go to the gym with her little old lady friends and they're all going to be like, oh my God, like your daughter. We saw her on TV, we saw her on this, we saw, and I want my grandma to just be like a peacock walking into a room full of pigeons. Wow. You know, you have a way with words. <laughs> you have a way with words. No, you don't want to live that yeah. life. You're, you're on the right path and uh, you have all the receipts and all the accolades. And I'm really excited to watch you grow and continue to blossom. I'm excited to be a friend and a homie on the journey. And um, I'm grateful for you in all the ways. Ana Castro, again, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Steven, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Steven Satterfield Show. You can follow us and learn more about the show at Whetstone Media on Instagram, YouTube, and online, whetstonemedia.com. That's W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E media.com. We'll be back next week. Peace.